Welcome to yet another of the Coot Street podcasts uh, for the for the summer of 2020, the summer of our discontent. And today I am delighted to be able to spend uh, oh, several minutes with um, Hugo and Nebula award-winning writer who was a legendary contributor to the history of feminine science fiction at the same time she was a legendary contributor to the history of what I think of as non-sentimental vampire fiction. Susie McKee Charnas. How are you, Susie? I am good, thank you, Gary. I'm fine. Um, I was thinking about um, I was thinking about your your, your bad guy Wayland um, the other day because somebody because I guess there's another Stephanie Meyer thing out there somewhere, and I I, I have to confess that after having read the Vampire Tapestry and seen the play for that matter, as you'll recall. I was just wanting him to go after all these wimpy vampires that are so popular these days. I, I want him to eat them alive. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I have to admit, I'm kind of curious about the new Myers book. Um, because, you know, this whole vampire thing is one long conversation. Yeah. Of speaking and answering to each other. So <clears throat> I, I wonder whether there will be any way that I can see that she's read my books or any other newer ones. Um, that are influencing what she's doing because she's doing it from the vampire's point of view. Yeah, which is unusual. And, yeah, which is unusual. And maybe, frankly, I'm thinking it might be interesting because she's had time to go up quite a bit since the spark. That's, prob- that's a good point. That's a good point. And uh, we shouldn't be... I, I, did, I did not finish the first Twilight novel. I started it, and there were some passages of geographical description that I thought were fine, mm-hmm. uh, but that was about as far as I got into it, actually. I finished the first book and I okay. saw a couple of the movies, but I I, cu- I couldn't get up enough interest to stay with it because it was so much of teen romance with um, goth overtones and, and well, that's, that's not great. And the other the other thing that occurred to me, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about the vampire tapestry, but one of the reasons I think that because that comes up in conversations with people every now and then. Uh, and I think one of the reasons it appeals to people is that not only is he not a romantic vampire at all, he's a feral beast, but I think everybody suspects that at some point in college they had that guy for a professor. They tell me so. I, <laughs> thought, so. I, said, I, thought I, so. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, that guy was on my thesis committee. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> because he is very much a type. He is. He, he, I mean, he, an he, academic type as well as not a vampire type. He's not a vampire right. type, but he is a human type. And everybody recognizes that aspect of, of academia. I think well. they're absolutely right. And vampirism is a metaphor which is used frequently to talk about predatory mentors and professors and thesis advisors and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Probably. But anyway, let's get to the uh, the questions we always ask on on, on these sure. short podcasts. Um, it's 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 been a very weird summer. Have you been able to get any reading done? Tons. Good. Tons. tons. I'm tearing through the library. Once <laughs> the library opened again, I was able to go in and, and grab a bunch of books and run out. So it's actually enhanced my reading experience. Interesting. The and 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 you're you're a public library reader too. Oh yeah. Which Wait. is great. I love the library. I spent my entire youth in the library and the Museum of Natural History. And mm-hmm. between the two of them and the public library downtown and the branches uptown, I was the happiest kid in the world, except oh, you were, I wasn't you there. Had, yeah, you could go to the New York Public Library 
yes. with the lions and everything when you were a kid. That's something I always dreamed of when I was a kid. Oh, I did. And I spent a lot of time there and I loved that place. Oh, my God. Ah. Well, what, what are you? Childhood, man, I had a great time. Oh, I don't doubt it. What have you been checking out of the library in the last few weeks? I will tell you, I have here on my desk <clears throat> a bunch of books. And um, the one that I'm reading right now, I have to tell you, Gary, I love this book. This oh, is a, a book by someone I've not heard of before named Joseph O'Connor, who apparently has a rep and a list of books that he's published. Oh, yes, this is no child. And um, it's, um, it's a kind of luscious and delicious cake with um, Bram Stoker of the Lyceum Theater and Henry Irving and Ellen Terry mixed into it. Right. Um, I've seen the reviews of this. It sounds fascinating. It's a wonderful book. It's, a, it's the inside of Bram Stoker's head, uh-huh. which is fantasy part of the time. And then it's the reality of the life of the theater of the time, all the nitty gritty. So the fantasy theater thing is the real and what's inside Bram Stoker's head is um, what he turns into a reality on the page. So it's kind of a, there's that back and forth between different kinds of creativity uh-huh. going on. And it's brilliantly written. The dialogue is wonderful. And there's a monster in it. Oh, I really? Mean, so there is know. a fantasy. I could not tell from the reviews whether there was an actual kind of fantasy element in it or whether it was just Henry Irving who was the monster. Henry Irving is the monster, but there's uh, okay. also a fantasy element in these um, illusions that keep afflicting Stoker. That sounds that's, – that's one of the ones that's been on my list because uh, when when my partner Dale and I were in London a, f- a couple of years ago now, I guess, we, we ha- went up to Golders Green to look at the ashes of Bram Stoker, which turns out – I mean, this is a place that has Peter Sellers and Anna Pavlova and Freud in it. Oh and apparently the most frequently asked for <laughs> urn is that of Bram Stoker. <laughs> so that's, well, that's lovely to hear because it's clear from this book, which is obviously reflecting some aspects of his reality, uh-huh. that it was not a very happy life. It was a very difficult life. I gather not. And I gather he was always an outsider being an Irishman living in London. Yes. And apparently he had no literary success in his lifetime. So when you put that together with... What happened afterwards? Yeah, it's a kind of tragic comedy. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad that at least people come looking for it. That's nice. Great. Anything else you've been reading that you yeah. that you're enthusiastic about? Well, I just read um, uh, an older book by Elizabeth Vonnerberg called *Reluctant Voyagers* that was on my shelf, and enjoyed it very much. It goes back to oh my gosh, this is old. That's one of the things that I'm recommending <clears throat> that people do. Um, during this uh, interregnum, uh, interregnum of the craziness, is read your old science fiction stuff. Everybody's got a shelf full. 1995 comes back. Uh-huh. And I also have Where the Crawdads Sing. This book was recommended to me by a grizzled old Trump supporter in a wheelchair in a library. So you can you can kind of imagine that I wasn't anxious to get to it. Yeah. <laughs> but. I'm really quite enjoying it, even though it's set in the South, and I don't usually like oh. books that are set in the South. That that gothicy edge to everything just sets my teeth on edge. What, what's 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 the title of it again? Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. Apparently oh, 
this is the one that's been on the bestseller list for like a hundred weeks. Yeah, so I finally bought it and I'm starting to read it and I'm it's okay. But you know, I'm hoping it'll pick up and I'll get all excited. Next, mm-hmm. uh, Comet's Tale, Story of a Greyhound. This is by uh, Stephen D. Wolf. Hey, Wolf. Hey. Uh, <laughs> about a guy with a terrible back condition who um, rescued a greyhound and discovered that the greyhound, although not used for this, makes a wonderful service dog. He trains his dog to be a service dog. And these are big dogs. You've seen greyhounds. Oh, yeah, they're huge. They're huge. Well, they're, they're powerful. They're very strong. It's a racing greyhound. Mm-hmm. And so everybody said, don't do that, don't do that, because if it sees something run, it'll run and pull you off your feet and kill you. But it turns out that she, <clears throat> Comet, is a, a perfect service dog. She invented things to do for him. That's um, something I would not have expected, but I, no. I, I don't. I don't know a lot about dogs, except greyhounds are big and lanky and fast. Yes. Uh, and I imagine one could drag you through the bushes if it took a mind to. I think he could be dragged quite a long way. So I bought it because I was curious, and um, uh, and I really enjoyed it. And the other thing I was reading was one of um, uh, <coughs> Arnold Indridason's um, mystery novels set in Iceland, where he lives called Into Oblivion. And this is a series that I read um, every once in a while. It's quite a long series at this point. His detective is kind of interesting. Are, uh, you, are you generally a fan of what they call Nordic noir? Yeah, unless it gets really, really, really... Um, uh, they have a tendency to turn uh, uh, plot-wise on horrible crimes against women. Right, that's something I've heard. Yeah, even though they also have, they also tend to have very good woman characters. I mean, they're not stereotypes and they're not stupid. Uh-huh. But a lot of the <clears throat> the criminal activity is um, uh, sex trafficking and just general misogyny and craziness. But I like these because they have a nice, he writes the atmosphere very well. This is set in uh, wartime, World War II, mm-hmm. uh, or shortly afterwards. And it's, uh, it's, it's good, but I found myself skimming because... I don't know why. Maybe um, maybe I'm giving up this guy. I'm not sure. I'll try it again sometime. We'll see. And finally, where's the other thing? Yeah, then the next book up is something called Paper Sun by someone named, that's S-O-N, Sun, by someone named S.J. Rosan. And this is apparently a mystery novel, a detective novel, set in Mississippi about um, the history of Chinese immigrants in the South. Well, that could be interesting. So I think that should be a very interesting piece. So that's what's kind of on my... Do you have any comfort reads? I mean, things that you feel like you should, in, in a stressful time, something you just go back to? Uh, I usually pull something by Paul Anderson off my shelf. Okay, well. Yeah, something by Ursula or something. Um, I, I don't find um, Joanna Russ comforting, but I, I'll read her again sometimes um, for the not comfort. I've right. got a book on the shelf called The Genocides. You know it? The, the Tom Dish thing? Yeah. Uh-huh. That I go back and read once in a while because it's not comfort reading. No, it isn't at all. It's, it's kind of the opposite. It's meant <laughs> it, to make you upset. It's, it's discomfort reading. Oh. Um, but those are kind of the things that I that I pull down off the shelf. But also mystery books. I have a, a shelf, top shelf of good mystery novels. Uh, Michael Gruber, for example. I just read, uh, I reread Night of the Jaguar. And uh, the guy is a spectacular writer, and I just haven't seen his name very often, but he's got a trilogy about a um, uh, 
a Cuban, second generation from Cuba, um, detective in Miami, I think. And uh, these are stories about his tangles with various uh, um, fantasy superstition elements of the subcultures there. And they are wonderful. They're really interesting and quirky and well, the, the last thing we get to is you. Uh, I, I know you have not been writing a lot lately. Uh, but, but I have news. But, yes. News. Um, <clears throat> I had all my work uh, uh, electronically up through Bob Kruger's Electric Story. And he, of course, closed down his, public, his publishing house about two years ago. And I finally got, got around to having Timmy Duchamp take over all of that material. And it's all be, it'll all be coming out sometime, I think, before the end of the year at Aqueduct in electronic form. Oh, great. So everything's coming back, except I've got to go see if I can get um, the whole fast books back from Macmillan, which I think I can probably do because they have not been selling and I want them to take everything down, give it all back, and then see if Timmy wants to take it. I think she there, there's, there's never been a uniform edition of the whole Fast Books, has there? No, no there has not. And there needs to be one. I mean, really, that's something that you know, everybody should know about. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I second the motion. Well, I mean, so it, it, it shows up in all the literary histories of feminist science fiction, and I, I've often wondered how the... And, and something... Similar is, is, is true of Joanna Russ. Mm-hmm. I think more people know her name than have read her books. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and, and so that, that's something we'll all look forward to. So Aqueduct is going to do these as e-books? Yes, they will be Great. e-books. And I don't know whether they're doing, they're doing any of them as paper. I think I've got that, I've got that Judas story that I read out loud at some, some convention or other. Right, and, I think you read the ICFA, I think. Yeah, and uh, Timmy says she'd like to publish it, but she wants some other stuff with it. So I have to see if there's some other non-published things. Because, no, I'm not writing. Gary, I can't write. I can't concentrate enough on my own inner voice to write in these times. And also I'm old. I don't know. You know, maybe well, you, just... know you don't have to. Uh, I was going to say we're, we're, we're both old, and there's a point at which you don't have to. Yeah. Do something you don't feel, and and you know that that you've got a body of work out there which is enormously impressive, and uh, it's uh, it, it's it's no longer your obligation to keep providing us with that material. That's my feeling. I'm glad to hear somebody validate that. No, I'm, we're on we're on the same page, but now we're sounding like old coots, which is we're a good sign. Coots. We're old coots. We are old coots. That's yes. true. Yes. Okay, I like it. Old coot. <laughs> Well, it's been uh, over over ten minutes as I knew it would be. But again, this has this has been uh, a delightful conversation on the Good Street Podcast. I'm Gary Wolf. We've been talking to Susie McKee Charnas, and thank you for joining us, Susie. My pleasure.